Welcome to Protest and Survive number seven. I'm your host, Reed Dunley. In this podcast, we do interviews with people who do both creative and activist work. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And please consider becoming a monthly supporter by donating at anchor.fm slash protest dash and dash survive. This month's guest is Jesse Jeffrey Dunn Rovinelli. Jesse is a filmmaker who recently wrote, directed, and starred in a feature titled So Pretty. The film made its U.S. premiere at BAM Cinema Fest 2019 after a run of screenings in Europe. So Pretty explores the lives of a group of young artists in Brooklyn, described by Jesse as sexual deviants. We could call the person Paul kisses Erica. Perhaps we could call them Bruno or Fritz. Since Fritz is very hard to differentiate from Franz, we'll call them Bruno. The name really doesn't fit them at all. Like we said, Erica fits better. The film is an adaptation and translation of a novel by gay German writer Ronald M. Schernakow, which took place in 1980s West Berlin. I first met Jesse at a weekend-long rave in the woods upstate called Sustain Release. Once back in New York, we saw each other around at parties and shows and at various protests in the streets, usually of the more radical, anarchist, black bloc variety. I once randomly captured a cell phone video at a protest near Washington Square Park where you can read Jesse's lips mouthing the words, fuck you pigs, in the midst of a scuffle with NYPD. One thing that drew me to interviewing Jesse is she was always saying things on the internet that I actually fucked with which for me is exceedingly rare amongst my online peers when it comes to talking about the world and politics. Interviewing Jesse, I learned we had a lot of other similarities when it came to our general activism and art trajectories. We both walked out of high school to protest the Iraq war. We went to fancy Northeast liberal arts colleges. We've been living in New York for a similar amount of time, and we work with visual and audio media, trying to tell stories of possibilities and hardships, albeit in different ways. I've been experimenting a bit with format and approach with Protest and Survive, and I think it's worth noting that for this episode, given that the conversation took a slightly more heady and academic bent than some previous ones, I'm trying out going with a straight interview format rather than weaving in any narrative elements. As for the format of next month's episode, only time will tell. Thanks for listening, and without further ado, here is Jesse Jeffrey Dunn Rovinelli on Protest and Survive. I'm uh, Jesse Jeffrey Don Ravanelli. I'm the director of So Pretty and Empathy, uh, two feature films, one documentary and one narrative. Uh, my most recent is So Pretty, which is a sort of narrative-ish film following four to six young gender deviants in New York City as they nap and fuck and try to get, get by as best they can. It's also an adaptation of a, of a 1980s German novel by the author Ronald M. Schernickow. Did you come up with the term gender deviance? No. I don't know who did. I'm just <laughs> trying to make jokes. I try to say anything other than queer and trans because it gets so fucking boring. <laughs> I think I also saw you say that you don't really like queer as a term. No, I'm, I'm bored with the term 
queer. It doesn't, um, you know, at the time it was when it was invented, it was reclaiming a slur and trying to create this sort of umbrella term that that acted in opposition. But now queer has simply become a new um, category that for me just flattens difference. It says that like queer people are the same and this fundamentally is not true. The experiences of a a brown trans woman living in in Brooklyn is going to be very different than that of like, to use the most extreme example, is this white male working in finance. I mean, these people may not actually have much in common whatsoever besides to some degree not doing what their gender was was supposed to do, but the relationships and and what exists in that and how they relate to capital are are very different. So for me, the term queer has become a way to erase difference and to remove political activism or or political possibility, whereas once it was able to create possibility. So now I just say gay or or gender deviant or just make up some fucking word and throw it out there to try to try to give some sense of something new. Can you remember what some of those other words are that you like to throw out there? I mean, there's gender nonconforming, but that now has sort of institutional ring to it, which I'm not such a fan of. Um, I mean, as much as possible, I'd rather just not use a term. I just make them up. I say gender divergent and gender deviant, what, what you will. Um, because most forms of what we would call queer lifestyle practices are, are, are fundamentally about not doing what a gender is supposed to do. But I'm not really interested in, in queerness and gender deviance and any of these things as such. I'm only interested in the possibilities that very specific bodies might might um, give us, be it this this brown trans woman living in, in Brooklyn or, or, or perhaps even this this white homosexual living in, in, in Manhattan working in finance. I mean, maybe he does give us a, a way to look at something um, while perhaps not being an interesting political subject in and of himself. So for me, I try to approach people where they are and and to see what specific affordances those those people can give us or just what ways of thinking about the world they can give us. Um, I'm tired of idealizing uh, whatever whatever term we might use to, to, to describe this blanket umbrella term of queer people as as being something extraordinary. I, I very much love queer people. This is the community in which I live. Um, but I think by like idealizing it as like a, a as a uniform group, we we lose track of what they can actually do, where they're actually living. When you talk about the possibilities for people, you're talking about um, sexual possibilities. You're talking about political possibilities. You're talking about. Can you tell me? Yeah, what you mean? I mean, I think ways of relating to our own bodies and ways of relating to other people's bodies and giving ourselves space to reconceptualize our own bodies and to reconceptualize how we relate to other people's bodies, that for me is a political possibility. Um, it's not going to be enough to dismantle capitalism and burn the state, but it is enough to give us space to think about something. And so it becomes one way among many to think about what would a society or a way of living that feels more comfortable uh, feel like um, in our actual bodies and the way that we that we experience touch and we experience survival um so that's what has interested me about the the characters in the film and and the novel um the novel is written by a communist author who said you know i am communist before i am gay and emigrated from uh west germany to to east germany because he believed in communism despite the fact that east germany was substantially more homophobic than than west germany um, and so these are all interesting histories. Um, and so by bringing them together, I thought well, at least I can make a space for myself to think because I feel quite, I felt quite enormously stifled when I made the film. I mean, also when I began the film, I had not yet transitioned myself. So this became a process making the film to understand how I would relate to, to my own body and how, what I looked like as a political subject and what my community and, and, and this history of authors and politics that I was drawing from 
could look like, you know, as fascism rises and does whatever the fuck it does. Um, so it became a way of seeing a, a future because those futures were all becoming rather foreclosed. And that's a real bummer. And what sort of, you know, future did making this film allow you to see? I always describe it as like, it doesn't necessarily show me a future, right? Because I, I actually think that humans are very bad at imagining futures. And then when everybody asks you to imagine a communist future, or an anarchist future, or a world without cops, it's kind of a ridiculous question. We all kind of look like assholes when we try to answer it because we don't know what it looks like. We just are pretty fucking sure that it's going to be better than what we currently live in. So I describe it as like sending a camera through a room and trying to look at the contours of what might be something that we might want. So in this case, it was just a way to create a space for people to interact in among, among themselves um, with gentleness, with kindness, with the ability to think about something other than their genders, about where they're going to get food, about these sorts of these concerns that we're endlessly consumed with under capitalism, and to think about, like, rather than that, how to relate to one another's bodies. But the film is not, like, it's kind of imagining a utopia in the everyday, in the right now, in 2018 in, in Brooklyn, um, while knowing that the entire rest of Brooklyn in 2018 exists and the entire rest of America and the world and these oppressive systems that, that don't like us. So it becomes an act of imagining even as nothing changes and just sort of seeing, seeing what's there. So ideally, yeah, a world where we get to think about one another rather than um, the concerns that are forced upon us by neoliberal capitalism, be that you know, figure out your fucking identity or, or get a job or, or any of these things. It's not these characters don't have identities or jobs. It's just the film makes a space where we don't have to think about them, at least within the space of these apartments, within these moments. And then you see the rest of the world on occasion, and it's not pleasant. Um, and we know it's not pleasant, but, yeah. When you talk about imagining a, what a world could look like or does look like in this yeah. film, I mean, I feel like I this is not something I'm really well versed in or studied or anything but obviously it seems like a part of this is of this film is like this novel is being translated through the film so this whole like concept of a different time in a different place is being like yeah. translated to brooklyn from berlin or whatever yeah. from 80s berlin, yeah. west berlin it's not that i idealize um berlin in the 1980s in any way and the characters in this novel many of them probably wouldn't like me but they're a part of a history. And so it became interesting to me to like try to do a thinking that cross borders, that cross times, that cross genders, so that we don't feel so isolated, so that a history exists. And so if we're going to move between bodies and between genders and between um, you know, political systems, then I wanted to do that in a film where you see this act of translation, where you take a source, rework it, create something new out of it. And so the characters in the film are actively doing this like on screen with the novel. They're reading the text and then they act out in ways that are, do not actually follow the text in the novel, but sometimes do. And in the same way, I'm trying to do this with like various queer, to use that word, histories, but also like the history of communism. Um, but I'm not even a communist, but I am sympathetic towards many of its aims. So trying to engage in this act of translation on all levels, translating between languages and, and time periods and, and histories. It, it, it happens to be Germany in the 1980s because I think the book is very good, but it could have been anywhere. Yeah. These threads exist everywhere. You were also traveling to Germany a bit during making this film, or at least before it or uh, just I just after happened it? to be fluent in German and so I happened to read the book because someone happened to tell me that I might like it it's just chance um, and then it just stayed there um, you know during this period where I was like I don't want to be a boy anymore and I don't know what I'm doing politically and this book was just sitting there and I kept thinking about it 
Um, so I just happened to speak German and it happened to be untranslated and I, I wanted people to be able to read it, but to simply translate it seemed deeply, or to simply like film it seemed really boring and sort of like unfaithful to 2018. It would have been fetishizing 1980 and I, I don't want to do that. So then this act of translation, we see characters on screen translating the book and, and we contradict what we hear and, and all of this. Again, forgive me for my relative ignorance on film generally <laughs> but is that a, a a theme that's you know happens in other films or is there any sort of school where it's like an adaptation and a translation at the same time because i think it's like seems pretty like interesting thing to do i um, don't i don't know of any other they must exist but there's I, I don't really know of a tradition of translating novels that are not currently in the language in which you intend to make it um People make adaptations of novels in other languages all the time, but usually after they've been translated. I don't know. Maybe that was a first. Maybe I should should play that up a bit more. It's just, you know, I'm not a translator, so I couldn't really translate the novel directly. And, and I, I don't know. I never want to let things be boring. So This author is no longer living? He's no longer living. He died in... So he, he was born in the late 70s, and he died in the early 90s at, like, 32 uh, of AIDS in, in East Germany. He didn't want to go back. He didn't want to tell the East German officials that he had AIDS because he would have been kicked out. Um, so it's very sad. I had to work with the, the, the author's surviving boyfriend uh, to get the rights. And that was an interesting and powerful experience to to go back and you know, speak to this guy. And the, the novel's like about this boyfriend and it's actually kind of a burn on the boyfriend. He was mad at him when he wrote it. So it's it was a very, yeah, that was... A, I'm very happy that Thomas Thomas Keck, the ex-boyfriend, um, was willing to let us do it. But it was, yeah, yeah. They said you have to come here. You have to talk to him directly if you want to do this. So I went there and I talked to him, and yeah, it was. It's good. It's always good to to come in direct contact with with the histories. Um, I think um, we can lose sight of uh, cross generational talk and. I think part of this novel is trying to make sure that cross-generational talk continues to happen because we don't want to forget the lessons that our political parents have tried desperately to teach us. You had a line that you wrote in a piece that you did for Talkhouse, I believe, mm -hmm. that said, the film more or less is what it set out to be, but what I hadn't anticipated was the ways in which So Pretty itself was becoming a part of my history and my autobiography, tangling myself more deeply in its participants and concerns. I think you've spoken about the a bit already, even since we yeah, but I first get, started talking. Yeah, but I can get personal if we want. Yeah. yeah, could you tell me about that? Yeah, so I came out as transgender uh, right around when I was starting to make this film, and I wasn't supposed to be in the film, and I am one of the actors in the film, um, which just happened because somebody dropped out immediately before shooting. But while making this film, you know, my body was changing, my relationship to the world was changing, and then I ended up on screen, and, you know, I kept changing the script to sort of adapt to where I was at and then at some point you realize it's an impossible process and you're never going to be able to reflect it and it wasn't supposed to be true anyway so you just do it but then the film is in the world and it becomes the first time that like my body and it's like medically augmented form appears in the world and you have to go to these festivals and meet these people that you already knew but you're not you know, you are but aren't this person that they knew and it's just this endless negotiation and you're on screen and I don't even look like the person that's on screen so this film becomes a marker of like what I looked like and how I moved, you know, like nearly a year ago. 
and uh, and the concerns of the film it's it's about my community though everything is fictionalized past the point of uh truth but you see elements of the real world come in so it just became enormously complicated and sort of difficult to deal with and at some point it actually became totally overwhelming because it requires a lot of uh faith in oneself when the film is a document of a moment of change for you politically and personally so it can be I like watching the film but like dealing with it as an object in the world is can be very difficult yeah and that and and but also this utopian thinking that was not a part of my thinking I was not an optimist and then I made this film and Sharon Cow's ghost forced me to to think about his image of communist existence now in in the right now um and I'd imagine that has something a little bit to do with you also have like a little utopia making this film together. Yeah, but it's like a fraught one, you know, like somebody got hit by a car on their motorcycle halfway through shooting and that, you know, throws things about and you don't have enough money and you don't have enough time. And But you have to maintain this this utopia. You have to you have to try as much as possible to respect everybody that you're working with and to make the environment that is calm and quiet and and caring. Um so it becomes like the film making the film was me like trying very hard to keep a world from falling apart uh, much as the characters are in the film and like me trying to take faith in the possibility that my own existence was not something was something like worth making a film about um, that my body was a legitimate subject to shoot i of course think that everybody else that i'm working with is legitimate but in terms of myself you, you have to take yourself seriously which is a, is a nightmare it's really hard to do once you become meat for your own intellectual process, it's and your actual body, it's that's really a lot. But um, but I'm happy I did it, and you know, folks seem to seem to respond to it, and so you know. But I don't have the energy to do that again anytime soon. <sighs> what do you think about the ways that other films today treat um, sexually deviant stories? <laughs> Yeah, I mean the number one is like let trans people tell let let trans people tell their own stories for sure. Um, it becomes very boring when you see film after film that comes in comes to us looking to like explain our interiority or to discover like the inner workings of our mind. I'm like, we don't understand the inner workings of our mind, and if someone tells you that, they're lying. And I don't think you understand the inner workings of your mind either, straight cis man. Um, I think that's just a farce that we tell ourselves. And you watch these films, and it can be incredibly frustrating. You're re- you're reduced to the specifics of your gender identity, which is so boring. And I am excited when people make films where they look to where they're standing and their own specific body as a way to think about the world differently, and also to think about film differently. To think about how can I use a camera to look at people in a new way. And so many films don't do this. Um, but also, we've seen more and more that you can't just like assume that because a trans person is telling a story, it's going to be a good film. I mean, a lot of them can either just think representation is enough. I stuck a bunch of trans bodies in the film, so this film is is good. And while it's nice to see, and it's certainly validating to see people that kind of look like me, that is not necessarily going to create a better world for anybody. It's just, it's just another piece of film. And I want them to get paid. I mean, you know, as long as we exist in this stupid system, I want people to be able to make their art and hopefully get compensated for it. Um, but it's not enough. I don't think, you know... We all have a responsibility to to push our craft forward and to take our art very seriously. Um, representation's a trap. You can't you can't get tricked into thinking that like simply because I put this person on screen, I've I've done something. 
um, trans or not, that can just be playing out of the same old propping up bodies for display and clapping yourself in the back for it without trying to figure out how you can look at a body to make a world or a community that's going to be better for those sorts of bodies. Or even just to give us an insight about the ways in which film or, or, or gender or politics function. So I, I get frustrated, but I also see a, a number of like wonderful paths opening up and there's filmmakers doing exciting, thrilling work that, that makes me so happy to be part of a generation where this is happening. What types of art influence your filmmaking? Is it, is it films? Is it music? Is it paintings? Is it none of the above? Yeah, no, it's um, with film, the films that I love don't influence me because I'm too, I don't know how to engage with that. that I, like, I can't. I don't, you, what do I do, copy it and make a worse version? I can't do that. So for film, I draw from films that I don't like, where I find something in it that is interesting, that I'm like, oh, I wish that had been done better because this idea is really good, but I don't think it really worked out. Um, so mostly I draw from music. Um, music has become the biggest influence for me. Um, the sound in my films is very important, but then, like, So Pretty is structured like a like a techno, like a techno song. Um, it's It has these looping elements, these scenes repeat. We, we literally sketched out the film as, like, kick drum, hi-hat. Um, and so it's about holding space rather than, like, stretching, creating a traditional narrative trajectory. Um, so, I, yeah, I let, I let um, various forms of music inform me. It's not just techno. I'm, I'm very interested in... And sort of noise musics and, and ambient musics. And it used to be punk, but that is sort of faded, but it might come back. I've always wanted to do like a black metal movie, figure out what that looks like, whether or not I actually use black metal in it. But yeah, music for me was always a way of opening space because you go to a show and it's, yes, there's, there's music, but it's also about the people in the space and how they talk to each other, how they dance, how they interact. This, for me, is, the, is a very exciting form of art because it like directly spurs people to talk to each other, to engage with each other, and to engage with an art subject. Whereas in a film theater, you sit and you look at a screen. And much as I love film, I can't... That experience needs, needs more, which is why I try to make films that hold space, um, that open up space, where you can sit in it and exist in a space, and then hopefully like you've been wanting to talk the whole time, and you do, or maybe you just relaxed for a moment and took some space for your brain to sort of power down, and then you come out and can power back up again, and you can think about some shit. So the, um, yeah. the track... The track can be interesting, but the rave might be a little more interesting. Yeah, for me, a rave is a, is a fascinating environment, especially because, like, sleeping or fucking are just as legitimate ways to engage with uh, a rave environment as, like, listening to the music is. I think doing something other than listening is, is very exciting, but the music is there. The music changes your experience, so I try to look at films in the same way. Tell me about filming at a protest and what that was like. Yeah, that was interesting. That was shot before... The, the protest in the film was shot before... The rest of the, the rest of the film, so people's hair is different. That's like something that I keep doing in films, like shooting scenes out of sync, so the hair changes. I, I like that for whatever reason. But um, you go there and you're shooting. We were shooting on film, on like celluloid film, and so the the news journalists there were all very confused. They're like, "Why are you, are you shooting TV on film? Like that's very weird." Um, and I'm like trying to direct because this is a narrative film, so I have an actual scene that has actual places that people have to go in like an actual protest. Um, but we would just say like, I'm on your side. It's like a lefty thing. And then people, you could actually direct the crowd. And, you know, we had the like resident white guy who could, you know, get most people to do what he wanted, which is a terrifying skill. Um, 
that was given to him. So use your power for good, white men. Um, so it was very bizarre. <laughs> so I'm functionally like telling this guy to direct the crowd to make, make space for these movements to happen. And like, oh, can you move that sign out? Because that doesn't look so good. And then the processes itself, I was like fairly uninterested in. I just wanted to see people sitting there in space together. Um, so in, in the mixing, we like removed most of the chants and replaced them with just drum beats and, and shouting because I'm much more interested in protests and like how people move through them, how they hold hands. Um, because most protests are fairly useless, but I'm not against protests because protests, I'm, I'm very much pro-protest because A, it's important to be seen, it's important to say something. Um, but also it's important, we learn skills about how to um, survive at protests. We learn how to take care of one another. We learn how to make sure people have water, to make sure that people get away from the police, that, that everybody's accounted for and cared for. That, to me, is like an enormously important aspect of protest. So I encourage folks to go, even if like they feel somewhat uncomfortable about the specifics of the protest, and you will at every protest. Like There is no perfect protest. It won't happen. It's too many people from too many backgrounds. But you can learn a lot about interacting with too many people from too many backgrounds at those things. And that, for me, is an incredibly powerful experience. So we're shooting in this protest just trying to get those moments of interaction between our actors and the cast and the uh, crowd of strangers and between our actors and each other. Um, but yeah, much less difficult than you would think. Yeah. Well, there, you know, people are usually everybody's looking, shooting. Yeah. People are looking, everybody's shooting and people are generally looking for, um, a group direction in mm -hmm. a protest. So that makes sense. Yeah, I guess sense. it's true. You can very easily like lead a protest if you want. Anybody can kind of do it. And so we were just leading them to make a film with us instead. In recent, you know, years or months or whatever, yeah. what sort of protests have you liked participating in or felt um, drawn to participate in? I mean, maybe I'm a monster, but I haven't gotten to much in the last year. I've been completely burnt out. Um, so I've kind of withdrawn. I will go well, again, and I think now in this moment I'm gaining strength. Years plural. Years plural. Um, I mean, the Black Lives Matters one felt very important to be at, and they were interesting because they were very youthful. It was not the sort of like typical, you know, late twenties, early thirties crowd that you that you get at these things. It was a much more diverse range of ages. Um, those struck me as, yeah, important. But yeah, yeah, there was yeah something interesting happened there. And J20 was, was interesting for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah, and terrifying, of course. Do you uh, remember? I don't think we see that intensity in American protests on the East Coast very often. Yeah, yeah, it's not like, uh, it's not like Oakland here. No, no. Do you remember when you first started going to protests and why? Yeah, I walked out of school for the Iraq War. I wonder if it was partially just because I wanted to walk out of school. But I remember that very clearly. If I felt something when I chose to walk out of school. I I'd gotten used to breaking the rules in school, but I was always interested in finding a way to break them that wouldn't get me caught, basically. And this was like, oh, I'm deliberately getting caught for a reason that I you know, care about because various new metal bands told me to care about it. Bless their hearts. Yeah, it felt significant. So, where was that? That was outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And what happened? Uh, we just marched out and went to some kind of, I think it was like a war memorial, and then we stood there and chanted for like two hours or something. And then we went back to class. Um, 
But it was like, you know, it was one of the first times that it was like televised and you, you go home and watch the reports and you see it's happening across the country and, you know, you think that it might matter. And maybe, and you know, the, that wretched war got underway despite us. I think, I hope that maybe that kept something alive to try to stop future wars. I don't know. I don't know. I wonder if we walked out on the same day or not. I'm sure we did. It was one day. Yeah. There was like one day. I don't remember what time of year it was, but I think it was in the spring. 2009. 2009. No. No, no, no. 2007. 2000. 2008. No, it would have been even earlier, right? It would have been. 2003. Something like that. Yeah. I confused the year I graduated college and the it's same. Yeah, it was like so like one year after. Yeah. Then no. Yeah. yeah. I would have been in high school. Yeah, I guess 2003. Yeah, it would have been like. 14. I guess, yeah. yeah, well, at some point we'll look up when the Iraq war started. Yeah, we'll yeah. we should know this, but we're, we're, we're really committed political theoreticians and we do know history really well. And yeah. we'll but get I mean, back how to are you supposed day. to remember like what unjust war started? That's true. Year? I mean, at some point the wars started getting blurry, which was pretty dark. Yeah. Uh, they're still really blurry. Was there any other, um, you know, interesting political activity in your youth or, or academia? Uh, academia, no. In my youth, I don't know. I mean, I, I had that moment that everybody had where we thought Occupy Wall Street was going to be a thing. Were you living in New York at that time? I was, yeah. Yeah. Did you go to Occupy Wall Street a lot? Yeah, I got deep. I think that was probably the beginning of my disenfranchisement from, from all of this. But now I look back and I'm like, maybe it's not... Being disenfranchised is sort of an easy response. And I don't want to just be disenfranchised once again, I don't want to throw anything into the dustpan of history. Like, whatever was there, parts of it were very interesting, and those will, those will come back um, in, some, in some form. It got a lot of people used to saying that they don't like things, so, including me. So that was good. Did you camp out? No, but I was there when I got evicted. I like, woke up at 2 in the morning and biked down. I was crying and crying. Yeah. What was it like when you got there? It was sad. I mean, it was over. We were too late. Um, and a friend of mine was injured and just by falling over. And then I was alone. An old Italian woman, like, hugged me and cried. She was just a tourist, but she was like, you believe in something. That was, that was interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. It's embarrassing to talk about those moments in a certain way but because this you know, for whatever reason, leftism is now, I feel like, laughing at those moments. And there's plenty to laugh about, but I try to remind myself in the same way that I made a film that said, like, there's nothing to be embarrassed about and, and living as best you can. I don't, you know, maybe I, I don't think we should be so embarrassed about that time period. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, also, like, when it comes down to it, I feel like, I don't know, your film is talking a lot about bodies in a space and what's more than bodies in a space than yeah. Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, they bodies. occupied space and what they did that was interesting was trying to occupy space and maybe failing to, but but trying to occupy space in new ways is, is always going to be interesting. Yeah. Did you get any, um, any flashbacks hanging out at the Occupy ICE protests whenever that was? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah maybe I did. But that was interesting because it was more focused. There was something very concrete. I think that's like the, the weird gift that's been given to us by this 
current political time is that now what we hate is sitting directly in front of us and coming into our communities and harming people. It's not a gift. It's a it's a sick, sick pill. But if that's what it took to get us to figure out where to direct our actions, at least we're directing our actions. At least we're we're trying. Yeah. Do you remember when you first decided that you wanted to make films? Yeah, it was like um, 14 or 15, actually, right about when I had my little walkout. And I had always wanted to be a novelist. And then for whatever reason, I, I had a friend whose family like rented like six films a week. So we just would go there and watch them all. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And then I sort of maniacally stuck to that goal for a while. Um, the secret, though, is like achieving something that you've set up for yourself from 15 is actually not as satisfying as you would hope it would be. Uh, I, at some point, I came to the realization that I didn't... I cared very much about film form, and it was important to me to make films that took film and how to make films very, very seriously, but it could have been anything. At some point, it just became the language that I spoke best, and I was like, if this is a language that I speak well, then I need to use it to try to develop um, care and, and kindness. Um, as, as like naive as that may sound, that became a way to, like, how will I focus all of this, this sort of aesthetic understandings that I've accumulated over the years that can feel hopelessly intellectual. I was like, well, I'm going to use them in the, in the medium that I have to have happen to have skill in. And like, maybe I can think about the medium and how do we reduce hierarchies and reduce oppression, um, and do so visually and, uh, and through audio on film. And it, it could have been anything, but because I'd stuck with it since 15, I, I, I guess I had at least some minor amount of talent in it at that point. So it could have been anything. It was just the language that I spoke most fluently. Um, yeah. and yet I'm frustrated because other people I feel like don't care about the language enough I'm like you have to care about the language that you're speaking maybe that's why I made a film about translation I don't know but yeah you've talked a bit about now the film is out there and there's the festivals and the premieres and <laughs> the interviews and the um, you know mechanisms of all that but I guess it's a two-pronged question like what do you see as like the enduring effect this film is starting to have within the people who see it, but also yeah. like what is the legacy of it, of the, the people who came together and, and made it and how has that, you know, affected your guys' relationships and stuff? Yeah. I mean, for film, I don't, I don't think film is like a terribly great political tool. Um, unfortunately, I think it is, but in the long term and in, as an archive, as something to go back to. Um, so I don't have any illusions that like making a film, be it about leftist politics or, you know, non-traditional bodies is going to make much in the way of political change, but it does provide people with something and you do get feedback that, that people are just very, very grateful to, to see it and, and that it made them think about something in a different way. And I don't think it's like a huge impact and it's going to change the world, but it, you know, I mean, media is the stuff of conversation. If I can give somebody something to talk about that is something that I that I care about and that is a way of thinking and a way of looking that I care about, then that's that's really exciting. Um, for the cast, it's interesting. None of these people are actors, but they're all getting acting offers out of it, so that's that's really nice. Um, making it, I think, you know, at the end, I think we all it's it's difficult, even though the film like was we shot the whole film with the intention of like maintaining as much calm on set as possible, maintaining as much space to be present and to be relaxed. At some point, you know, it, it gets, it gets, 
many, many days and you start to get tired. And so at the end, I think we were all a bit burnt out. We were happy to have done it. You know, the crew shrinks as we shot days with smaller crews because we structured it like that. And then everything sort of went away. So by the end, it was just me and my cameraman. And we were just sort of there on the street like, well, that's it now. Everybody's gone. Um, and then the film comes back out into the world and you, you know, these people are all people that I saw all the time, but you come back into the world around the film again when it premieres and you touch and you get to check everybody else's relationship with having made it and, and what they think about it. And everybody, my perspective on the film has changed constantly over time. And so have all the participants and musicians and, and everybody that worked on it. So it's nice. It's a way of just checking in with, with a group of people and, and watching them all relate to it. Um, and I imagine that will... You know, that can continue forever. That's really that's really special. I think one nice thing about film is that it brings together a very intense community for a very short period of time, asks them to make a lot of decisions and to trust each other a lot, and then sends them out back out into the world, and you have this moment where you all have to trust each other. Um, and that can be something very comforting to think about. You've made it all the way to the end of episode seven of Protest and Survive. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to Jessie for sharing some of her story. So Pretty has a bunch of soon-to-be-announced screenings happening all around the world, with more information at www.jessiejeffreydunrovinelli.com. That's J-E-S-S-I-E-J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-D-U-N-N-R-O-V-I-N-E-L-L-I.com. Thanks, and catch you next time.